seated. To do so, I invite you to join me as we do every Lord's Day in taking your copy of God's Word and turning with me to Nehemiah. This morning we'll look at Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 18. So Nehemiah 8, 13 through 18. As we turn to our passage, we find... What we're going to read this morning, we're finding ourselves just on the other side of an extraordinary day. The wall's been finished, all the work has been done, and on that Sabbath day, the men, women, children, the covenant community gathered in the city to hear the scriptures read and explained. We believe it was somewhere between six to eight hours that they stood there and wrapped attention as, they, as, as God's leaders, the priests and the priests and the pastors read from the first five books of the Old Testament. And they wept, not because, the, not because the time was so brutal for them, but they wept because the Spirit was working on them to expose their sins. Under the reading and preaching of God's word, the Spirit was at work to make known to them their sins, and so they grieved and they wept. But as Ezra and the other priests were on the special stage and behind the special pulpit, as Nehemiah was there as well, and they saw what was happening, they urged them that this was not the time to grieve. Rather, this was the time for them to rejoice in God's deliverance and God's provision and God's sovereignty. That on this day of worship, the Lord's Day, reading and preaching God's word, was meant to be a day of joy and not of sorrow. So our passage this morning brings us to the next day. So let's pray together as we see what we're told about the day after this extraordinary day. So join me as we pray. Almighty God and our merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves, fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that the seed of your word ready to be sown among us, may take such deep roots that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this world to to choke it out. But we pray that as seed sown in good soil, it may bring forth blessing, knowledge, wisdom, and growth, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. We pray this in the name of the great sower himself, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 13, and let's stand together now for the reading of God's word. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. 
And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. As we read our Bibles and we hear the Bible read to us in corporate worship and in our own personal devotions, we find that we come to passages in the Bible that are just different enough from our day, from our time, and from our culture that we have trouble understanding them. It's hard for us to understand them from our 21st century standpoint. And I find this to be especially true when we come to the Old Testament which is just long enough ago, and the culture is just different enough from us that it can be hard to understand it at times. Such as our passage this morning. We probably, before this morning, have probably never heard of the Festival of Booths. So what do we do with it? Well, we may have to fight the temptation that when we come to this kind of passage, that we want to skim it over. And we want to set it aside because we don't know what to do with it. This is what they did so long ago. This has nothing to do with me. Let's just read it, get it over with, and let's move on. We may even try to spiritually and intellectually justify this by saying, well, that's the Old Testament. The Old Testament has no effect on me in the here and now of the 21st century. Those were antiquated people. And that was antiquated thinking, and therefore it's antiquated teaching that no longer applies to me. Therefore, I don't need to read this. Well, interestingly, on a very brief side note, we trace the origins of theologies that have done great damage to the church, what we call heresy. If you trace all the heresies that have done damage to the church, you'll find that near the root of many of those heresies is that understanding of Scripture. That understanding that says there are certain passages that are so antiquated in their thinking and teaching that we as modern people are far too intellectual and advanced and insightful to believe in such myths and teachings. If you don't think that's true, Go start reading up on some of those heresies that say we are too far evolved and smart to believe that somebody would die on a cross and be risen again in three days. That one eternal being would create all things by the power of his own word. That there could be no such thing as a flood. Heresies tell us, try to convince us that we are far too intellectual and insightful in our understanding to believe in such myths and teachings. However, we find that scripture doesn't say that about itself. We think of what the apostle Paul wrote, and he wrote this through the ministry and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, passage we've turned to several times, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture. Breathe out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
This is a pastor, an older pastor, talking to a younger pastor. And he says very clearly, in a very absolute way, all the scripture, not just the Gospels, not just the New Testament, not just those passages that are easy, those passages that we like, all the scripture, including the difficult passages, including passages such as our Nehemiah passage, they all has come from God himself and is profitable for our spiritual good and well-being. Every word of scripture, from the first word of Genesis to the last word of Revelation, is there to teach us what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. So when we come to a passage such as this, even though it may be foreign to us and we may not really have a great grasp of what it means, we know there are truths here that God has intended for us to hear, to love, to know, and to live out because it's his word to us. And so our passage this morning is set around a holiday none of us have ever celebrated before, but used to be celebrated at church. It was known as the Feast of Booths. It was one of three great pilgrimage festivals of the Jewish year. And his name, the Feast of Booths, comes from the requirement for everyone born an Israelite to be born in the covenant community that they would live in booths, these little tent huts made of trees and palm branches, for seven days, for seven days of the feast. And they were all over the place. They would, they would be on, on the roofs, they would be on street corners, they would be in the center of town. Everywhere you went, there were these little tent booths built all over the place. But it was a family holiday. This was something for the whole family to do together. So we can imagine the kids are getting excited because they're going to be able to camp out. While you know, the fathers and sons are going out and collecting materials and they're building them up and the mothers and daughters are, are getting the food ready and, and, and clothing and for them to be comfortable. It was a time of worship that brought the family together to remember part of their spiritual heritage. That for 40 years, their forefathers had wandered in the desert with no roof over their heads. For 40 years, generations, Wandering through the desert with no roof over their heads. So celebrating the festival of booze, they will remember how in this, God provided for his people for 40 years. Provided for them water and manna. And eventually brought them to the promised land. So we can imagine it was probably fun that first night, right? Something different, something fun. The family's gathered together, you're on the campfire, and you're making s'mores, and you're having a wonderful time. But as the days went on, maybe it rained, or maybe it was bad weather, but as the days went on, it would be a lesson in hardship and inconvenience, a vivid reminder of what their forefathers went through wandering in the desert, and how God took care of them. Even when they didn't have a home or a roof over their heads, their God took care of them for 40 years. So what can we as Bethel ARP on May 8, 2022 learn from a festival we have never celebrated and seems so foreign to us? Well, the first thing quickly is we see how the covenant family is a family. This was meant for the family to do together. They would gather materials together. They would build it together. They would live in it together for seven days. The covenant family is indeed a family. 
who worships together. And so we were reminded that we are a covenant family here. Covenant family of Bethel ARP made up of covenant families in it. We are made up of a, a group of people where children are to come into worship and wiggle and be loud and climb over their parents and make their parents question their sanity. It's here for the youth to sit with their parents and to see what it means to worship. It's for all of us to be together to worship. So we see the importance of the covenantal family. This wasn't just something for the fathers to do or for the fathers and sons to do or for the adults to do. This was all for the family together. It was for the covenant family to worship. And we were reminded of the same for us. This Lord's Day is a day meant for covenant families to worship together. But another lesson we learn from this is their quick obedience. Again, the, the timeline that the day before is the Sabbath day, they had spent somewhere six to eight hours standing up under the uh, listening to the reading and preaching of God's word. And, and, and in this, we find that their appetite for his word was whetted. It was just beginning. Because Nehemiah tells us that the next day, all the heads of the houses, along with the priests, came together for a Bible study. Just think about that. In the Lord's Day, together for worship for six hours, and sometime that evening or the next morning, they go, you know what? We want more of this. So Nehemiah says that all the men, recognizing their call to be heads of the household, came the next day for a Bible study. Now, to some, this may seem like a chauvinistic view. Because on the Lord's Day, the whole family was together. But now on this day for another Bible study, it's just the men who had gathered. So maybe it seems like a chauvinistic view where, where the man is superior and the women are inferior. So as the men were going out that morning, they said, Woman, you're to stay home, do my laundry, take care of the kids, and make me dinner. That's not what's happening here. Rather, we're seeing... That they are being reminded of their God-given and ordained roles. That in the family, the men have been called to be the spiritual leaders of their homes. Not better, not more important, it's what they've been created to be. Every man of the family is called to be the spiritual leaders of their homes. And that's what Paul further explains in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And who is the head of the church? It's Christ. So the temptation is for us to let the world to define our roles in the family. If you're paying attention to how the world is defining roles right now, we're all going to be really confused as to what our role is or maybe even what our gender is. But we come to God's word who reminds us that men have been called to be the spiritual leaders of their homes. So these men are understanding this. And so in wanting to love their wives and families well, they gather together to study more God's word. And as they study the word, they discover something that they seem to have forgotten. There is a requirement in law for them to celebrate the Feast of Booths. 
Now, during their years of exile, they had not been able to celebrate this feast. You know how it goes. If you don't do something for a while, you tend to forget about it. So as, as they have gathered, the men gathered that morning for Bible study, and they're listening to the Bible read and explained, and they're hearing Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it was made clear to them they had to do something. They had to celebrate this. So it was time for them to go gather branches and to make booths. God's word said it, so they did it. That's just a simple equation here. They heard God's word, so they obeyed. We're not told there was this great discussion of, well, we haven't done it in a while. Have any of you really missed it? No. All right, well, we're not going to do it. There was no uh, quibbling over this or that. There's no making excuses. There's no saying, did y'all hear what he said? I'm just going to ignore he said that. We find simply the attitude of, well, God said it, so I'm going to do it. It's like the quote from Samuel Rutherford I shared a couple weeks ago. Duty is ours. Events are the Lord's. Our duty is call our duty is to hear God and to obey. To hear God and obey. And blessings flow from that attitude. But our duty is to listen, to hear, and to obey. I'm reading a, a, a series on our ancestors, the Scottish Covenanters. It's a fascinating history. It's something I've, I've really enjoyed. When we think about their history, we, we think about their struggle with the king who was trying to get them to sign a covenant that he was the head of the church. And Scottish Covenanters said, no, that's a sin. That's a lie. That's actually blasphemy. And so we're not going to sign that covenant. And so the king of England began to send out his armies into Scotland to hunt down the Scottish Covenanters. And at first, they took away their pastors, took away their churches. Then they began to kill the men, burn down their farms and their villages. It's a horrible, horrible history. But part of their struggle, part of Scottish Covenant's struggle was from within their own ranks as well. At times, they could prove to be their own greatest enemy. For example, they finally gathered together an army large enough where they could march to Edinburgh, where the, king was, where the king had his army, they had an army large enough where they could march to Edinburgh to take on the king's army. And just as the battle commenced, a large group of the Scottish Covenanters went off to the side so they could have theological arguments over who should be fighting or not, over, over who was truly faithful or not. So as they stood off to the side and they had their arguments and they fought with each other, their brethren were met by the king's armies and were slaughtered. And the battle was lost because this group of men chose to argue over minute and unimportant points. Instead of obeying and fighting, they just fought with one another. And how often we can be the same when it comes to God's word. We read what God calls us to do or calls us not to do we find a temptation to step to the side and to start analyzing it and to look for loopholes. Does God mean that for me as a child, as a teenager? Does God mean it for me in, in my station of life? We're debating if it's worth obeying or not. And when we do that, 
we find that we're actually disobeying God and we're following after Satan. From the very first temptation he offered us, did God really say? Then isn't that where so many of our sins come from? Is we read God's word and we go, does he really mean that? Does God really say that? Do I really have to obey that? Yet obedience is exactly what scripture demands demands of those who know the joy of forgiven sin. Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Ephesians 6, 6. Christians are servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. 1 John 5, 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. John 15, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. James 1, 22. You're not just called to be hearers of God's word, but doers of God's word. Obedience is a mark of the faith. And quick obedience is a mark of a growing faith. Just like we see here in Nehemiah. What God says, we do. What he says not to do, we don't do. But it's one thing to obey while mumbling and complaining. But it's another thing to obey in joy and in the joy of the one you are obeying. All of us who have children and you've given your children chores and you have told them to do the chores, have they always done it cheerfully with a cheerful grin and yes, sir, I'll get right to it. My children don't. I didn't. Go off mumbling and complaining. What are you doing, old man sitting in a chair telling me what I'll go out to do? It's one thing to obey with a bad attitude. It's another thing to obey out of love and joy. Look at what it says at the end of verse 17. And there was very great rejoicing. It had been a long time since this holiday was kept. They were out of practice. And there were hardships involved in keeping it. They couldn't go down to the hardware store and get all the materials. They had to go out to the wild and get all these things together for it. Then they had to put it together. Then they had to get ready to live in it for seven days. It wasn't the easiest of obedience. But what Nehemiah says at the end of it, it was great rejoicing. There was joyful obedience. And what we find is there is a biblical and symbiotic relationship between obedience and joy. Which means that there is a symbiotic relationship between disobedience and, and whatever is the joy of, of, of sorrow, of depression. J.I. Packer says, nothing compares to knowing that you are doing God's will. And this may sound counterintuitive to some of us, because our concept and experience of obeying God is often unwilling and grudging. God is keeping us from doing the fun things. God is keeping us from living our life to the fullest. God has put us in chains of the law, and I have to just kind of go along like a beat puppy just doing all this to please God. In contrast, we find these here in Nehemiah who celebrated did so from hearts 
that were grateful to God for how much he loved them and took care of them. They responded with desire to do what was ever, what, whatever was demanded of them, not out of a begrudging compliance, but because they loved God. It is a joyful obedience. And they chose joy. They could have said, you know what, God, could you have given us a month to get settled in? God, why would you call us to obey when we had to go out and do even more work? It's hot. And we're sweaty. And I'm just tired of doing this stuff. They chose to obey. And we see again that biblical concept that joy is not an accident of temperament or providence. It's a matter of choice. We choose to be joyful. We think back to our study of Philippians. And if you remember... Paul wrote Philippians, but do you remember where he was when he wrote Philippians? He was in jail. Jail for God. He hadn't gone out and robbed a bank yet or run over somebody in a DUI. He was in jail for preaching the gospel. And he says this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Listen, if a minister of the gospel is in jail and he's saying, I'm joyful, you should be joyful, you've got to give ear to that. Joy is a matter of choice. And the form that joyful obedience takes in our passage is the, is the joy of choosing worship. They are joyful in their worship of God. The occasion described here is a regular, regular occasion of formal public worship. What were, these, what were our ARP forefathers doing here? They were joyful in worship. And if all of us are honest, if we are all honest with ourselves, we will admit that there may be a disconnect between worship and joy. If we were to list out our most joyful events in our lives, our top 10 most joyful events in our lives, would worship rank in your top 10, top 50, top 100, top 1,000? If we're honest, there's probably a disconnect for us between worship and joy. We come here, you're here, you've engaged in worship, because you haven't gotten left yet, and most of you haven't fallen asleep yet. You've sung, you've prayed, you're enduring this sermon, you've engaged in it, but are you doing so joyfully? We can engage in worship dutifully and without heart. We can, we can do all the right things, we can say all the right things, but all of it can be devoid of any warmth, tenderness, or any sense of joy. And for an outsider looking in, could they be looking at some of us and saying, this may be the most lifeless, boring activity of the entire week. Why do we struggle in finding joy in this time? And we, we joke about being the frozen chosen. But why can we seem so frozen at times? Maybe it's because we don't like the situation. Maybe we don't like the music. No offense, Bootsy and the choir. Maybe we decided we don't like the music. Or the sermon's boring. Who wants to sit through all these months of listening, listening about Nehemiah? Or we're not happy that there isn't more of our peer group around. But we've allowed the situation to determine our joy. And so we have chosen to not have joy because of our situation. 
when instead we can choose joy of worship because we get to revel in God's goodness. How good is God to you? He died for you. How good is God to you? He has woken you up every morning of your life. How good is God to you? Every good thing you have in your life comes from him. And we get to come bask in that. We get to come revel in in covenant faithfulness. We get to be overwhelmed that I, personally, me, am so loved by the Father that the Son gave up his only life for me. That the triumph God so loves me that the second person of the Trinity died on the cross and suffered hell for me. Just because we're the frozen chosen doesn't mean we have to be all the way frozen. We can thaw a little. When we think about the nature of what we're doing, how can there not be joy? A day where God has set aside for you to not carry about the, world, the cares of the world. A day set aside because he so loves you that he saved you from your sons or from, from your sins. He's gathered you together with the covenant community where we get to sing praises to his worthiness. We get to hear his word of how much he loves us and the path of love he has placed us on. This should be a day of joy for us. The thing about this joy is we can't conjure it up ourselves. And we can't, we can't pull up in the church parking lot and sit in there and bang our dad. I will be joyful. I will be joyful. So help me, I'm going to be joyful today. Right? We can't beat our chest and hype ourselves up before worship. If you were to do that, people walk by and may think something's wrong with you as well. But it's a joy that can only come from Christ. Our passage last week included the famous passage and a famous statement, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I know we sing that at Camp Joy. I believe you all sing it at Camp Long Clarkin as well. It's near and dear to us. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What is the joy of the Lord that gives us strength? The joy of the Lord is knowing who God is all his triune glory. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three in one, the one in three. And the joy of knowing that you are so loved by his triune God that before time even existed, before there was Genesis 1-1, that this God who so loved you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, said we are going to do everything we need to do to save them from their sins. So the Father is going to send the Son, and the Son is going to obey and come, and He's going to do everything that needs to be done to accomplish our salvation. And then when that was done, the Father and the Son would then send the Holy Spirit to apply that salvation to us, so that we are now eternally the sons and daughters of the God who so loved us that He made His covenant that He has kept throughout all eternity. That is our joy. That is our joy on this day and for this occasion. So this morning, that means if you belong to Christ through faith, that you have received and rested in him alone for salvation as he has been offered in the gospel, then you have the ability to choose the joy of the Lord. And we are called to follow the example of people's passage. That in this joy, we will obey quickly and we will obey joyfully because all of our joy is found in Christ alone. We, of all people, have every reason to be joyful. 
But if we do not know Christ through faith, then this day you too have a choice to make. To either know true joy in him or to know no joy apart from him. So wherever we may stand this morning, may each of us choose Christ. So in this we can always choose the joy of the Lord. Pray with me.